welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. The Apostle John seems to have thought that the highest expression of Christian privilege was to be found in fellowship. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1 and look at verse 3. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship has been given to us through Jesus Christ from the Father. It's a gift that he has given to us. It's much better to receive the gift of fellowship than to think that we have to work on a relationship with God. It makes all the difference in the world between seeing the compelling love of God to reach out to humanity and to bridge the gulf and to make the atonement than for us to reach out and try to make the atonement and bridge things back to God. I recommend to you a biblical way of thinking. It's not having a relationship with God. It's receiving fellowship from him as a gift in Jesus Christ. Think biblically. It makes a difference. It makes a difference. There were two boys who were in a class in school and they were studying the same lessons, and they had the same ambitions, and they had the same joys in their successes. Can you imagine two boys actually rejoicing when another, uh, his fellow had a success, and when his fellow was feeling low, his brother felt that keenly? But of these two, it could be said that neither of them had any ambition for himself, which he did not have quite as strong for his friend. And when one of them gained a victory or suffered a feat, the joy or the pain was shared equally by the other. And this was fellowship. There was the same mind and the same heart in all things. And somehow so, it's the highest privilege of the Christian to have the mind of Christ. And that is fellowship. It does not mean perfect knowledge of all of Christ's thoughts and purposes concerning us, but it does mean our supremest pleasure in what we know of Jesus' mind and of his will, and such love for him and such confidence in his love for us that we are more than willing to leave all of the unknown to him. Fellowship means thinking very similarly or close to one another. You know, the ones that are closest to you are the ones who have similar interests, aren't they? 
And Jesus desires to impart to us his mind, his way of thinking, and that's fellowship with Christ. I've had the privilege of having not only a father, I'm thankful for a father. My father is here today visiting with us from Michigan. And there's 30 years difference between us. Wow, that's a real generation gap, isn't it? See, they waited late to have us, uh, us two boys. But not only do I look upon him as a father, but I have fellowship with him. Because he and I study the Bible together. And we've read the spirit of prophecy together. And to the degree that we think alike in terms of these inspired sources, it's joy to be able to talk back and forth regarding these things. That's fellowship. And Jesus has a mind. And it is perfect in all of its knowledge. And there's no way that as human beings we're going to be able to encompass the whole mind of Christ. But to the degree that we are open and willing to, we experience fellowship with him and similar interests, and we enjoy talking with one another. By the way, you say, well, what does this have to do with communion? Communion is fellowship with God. And it's all centered on the cross of Christ and a deeper understanding of the cross of Christ. One day, a young man desired to be baptized, and uh, so a church committee thought that they ought to examine him, what he knew in terms of church doctrine, and so they sat him down as a baptismal candidate, and they began to ask him questions, you know, like they do in a doctoral thesis committee. (laughs) And so the first question was, well, do you understand the doctrine about God? And the fellow said, no, I can't say that I do. Well, then another committee member said, can you give us a definition of regeneration? These were all big theological terms to the poor fellow, and he said, well, I don't think that I can tell you what regeneration means. Well, do you understand what foreordination is? Take plenty of time to give your answer, said a kind-hearted old deacon, thinking the candidate was confused. Well, I don't think I know much about foreordination, said the baptismal candidate. Well, can't you give us some uh, opinion regarding the decrees of God? And the poor fellow said, well, I'm afraid I can't. Well, then, said the minister, a little impatiently, what do you know? And promptly came the answer, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that Christ died to save me, and I want to join the fellowship to get more help from Jesus and from his people. And every member of that committee felt rebuked, and one of them said afterwards, I learned from that moment to respect the spiritual knowledge of the humblest man or woman and not to think so much of that knowledge which comes from the head alone. Have you ever wondered why you have so many troubles Why you pray and you pray over your troubles. And it seems like the answer to your prayers are no. When you beg the Lord for a yes answer, now I'm assuming 
that you've had that experience because I don't know what to say to people who always get a yes answer to their prayers. There are people who pray for a new car and they get a new car and I don't know what to say to those people. All I know how to do is talk to people who feel like they get no for an answer to their prayers. The really important people in the world are those, the really important Christians in the world are those who have troubles. Did you hear that statement? The really important Christians in the world are those who have troubles and whose prayers seem to go unanswered as they want them. And the people who suffer disappointments and the people who suffer pain and, yes, even the poor people, yes, even the persecuted people are the important people. And there's something for us to understand. And I center this counsel out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 that helps us because our Heavenly Father permits us to have these painful experiences for two reasons. First of all, so we can learn compassion for others. We live in a world that's full of suffering where people need sympathy and comfort. And the Lord has no way to comfort those people and encourage them unless he can find some people who share his compassion and his feelings for them. So your heavenly Father permits you to feel a need for his comfort and encouragement precisely so that you can give comfort and encouragement to someone else. It reads there in 1 Corinthians, He helps us in all of our troubles so that we are able to help others who have all kinds of troubles using the same help that we ourselves have received from God. And then the second reason that the Father permits us to suffer troubles is that by knowing pain and suffering, we discover that we have fellowship with the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world. In verse 5, it says, we have a share in Christ's many sufferings. So that's how you and I learn to know Jesus, is through sufferings. As soon as you learn to believe this good news, your sufferings and your pain are then invested with new meaning. You see that they are not in vain. They enable you to experience fellowship with Christ. And do I dare say it? Something better? Fellowship with his children who suffer. When you help them, you help Christ. Someone is suffering the agony of being forsaken by his beloved wife of 10 years. He's been faithful to her. His love is deep. She has betrayed him. The pain of the infidelity he feels is almost unbearable. He asks the question in the song, Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And what can one say to help? It may not do much good to say, oh yes, Jesus cares, unless it is true that we also care. The Savior manifests or demonstrates his care through flesh and blood people. 
who feel with the one who suffers. It's like the pain that we feel when one member of the body suffers, the entire body shares in the pain. As Paul said, if one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. But the head is also a part of the body, isn't it? And Jesus is the head of the body, and Jesus cares. But how and why? Was Jesus ever divorced? He never married, did he? Never even married. How, how in the world could Jesus know and sympathize with those who suffer keen disappointment in love? I would have to say that it is at times even more difficult kind of suffering than physical suffering, even death, when pain comes between a husband and wife and now they're broken Well, Jesus is described in Isaiah 53, verse 3, as despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid our eyes from him, we esteemed him not. Do you think Jesus felt that? Did Jesus feel it? Yes. For he knew a travail of soul, didn't he? He knew the really deep kind of travail of soul. But being despised of men is one thing. Did he know what it is to be despised of the only one woman whom he loved? Is that beyond him? You know, there's no one woman on earth that could ever be Jesus' bride-to-be. But we read that the woman who he loves is his church. That's in Ephesians 5, verses 22 and 23. And there is a poem in the Old Testament in Hosea that tells about a broken-hearted husband whom Gomer forsook And it describes Christ's agony of heart for the infidelity of his people. And the Song of Solomon dramatizes it in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. It's the story behind all stories that is going on right now today among God's people. We can tell this man whose wife forsook him that his son will shine again. The reason is that the time is coming when Jesus' bride will return to him in deep repentance and he will say to all who have suffered in fellowship with him, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Yes, pain is painful, but what makes it bearable is for us to share pain with him. We never endure pain and suffering alone. Well, there's a phenomena that seems every sincere believer in Christ must experience. You must learn what to do when it seems like God is against you. You must learn what to do when it seems like God is against you. You know, there's many people in the Bible who wrestled with that problem. One of the most prominent that comes to mind is Job. Didn't everything go against him? 
He lost his children, he lost his possessions, he lost his health, his friends. Even his dear wife turned against him and told him to curse God and die. He, all, he became kind of a, a model or a prototype to Christ, who also had to go through the experience of feeling forsaken by God. And as Jesus hung on his cross, everything was against him. His friends had all forsaken him. One had betrayed him, Judas, and another had denied him, and his own people were crucifying him, and it appeared as though the Father in heaven had turned a deaf ear against him. And there had been others all through history. Abel served God faithfully, and yet he had to endure murder. He had to endure murder for serving God faithfully by his own brother. Noah had to endure 120 years of unrelenting sunshine without a cloud in the sky because he believed what God had said, a rain flood was coming. And finally, in that last week, as he and his family were inside the ark, his faith was severely tried as the people outside were laughing and ridiculing him. Where's the rain, you old fool? And Abraham waited 25 long years for the fulfillment of God's promise to him of a son through whom all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And then the lad grows up a bit and Abraham is told to sacrifice him. And David was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king of Israel. And for 10 years he's driven into the wilderness by an insane King Saul and David is apparently forsaken by God. On one occasion, his loyal followers threatened to stone him. And Jeremiah was, was to endure 40-plus years of continual rejection, only at the end to see his beloved Jerusalem and the temple destroyed. More than once, Jeremiah was tempted to give up in his despair. And Paul had his thorn in the flesh that troubles him. Three times he begs the Lord to deliver him from it. And the Lord says, no, Paul, don't pray about this anymore. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And let's not forget Stephen. He realized the blessing of the Holy Spirit as he preached his last sermon, only to have to kneel down and feel those stones being thrown at his head. And there are the Waldenses and other faithful Christians in the Dark Ages who served God and they had to die as martyrs. What do you do when it seems that God has forsaken you? You still believe him, like Job in the darkness. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty trust, the highest honor that a human can be blessed with. Don't turn away from fellowship in Christ's sufferings. How many innocent people have suffered? And what can an innocent person do who has thus suffered? Large part of God's word, the Bible is devoted to that problem. All who suffer innocently can receive comfort from the divine Son of God, who is the prince of innocent sufferers. 
It's not an idle bit of counsel that tells such sufferers to do the impossible and perk up, but it is living truth. Peter says, 1 Peter 4, verse 13, Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. To every innocent sufferer, the Holy Spirit whispers these assurances of divine justice yet to decide in their favor. Or better still, divine justice is already decided in their favor. The rejoicing is not suffering, something the sufferer has to do or to initiate, but it is a gift that is bestowed. Is this empty, small comfort for the person who is languishing for life some kind of unjust prison? No, it is a big comfort to be a partaker of Christ's sufferings, a most weighty trust and the highest honor that heaven can be so upon one of us. And it's not pie in the sky. It's a reward realized here and now. It is an intimate fellowship with the crucified one. And at the same time, a sense of fellowship with and a compassion for all who suffer wrongly. It's a deliverance from the common curse of arrogance and pride, which is a terrible way to be in. And now, in a few moments, we're going to be washing the feet. Back in the old New Testament times, feet washing was a social custom. And we never do it today. We never see people washing others' feet other than in church. But it was very common in Jesus' day, in ancient times. The people wore sandals, and they went barefoot, and their feet got dusty and muddy. How could you enjoy a cup of tea in the house of your host or eat at his table if your feet were uncomfortable with grit in between your toes? So he had a slave that was ready to wash them for you. So it was always an inferior who washed the feet of the superior, never the other way around. And careful search reveals there is absolutely no record in all of the literature of antiquity where any superior washed the feet of an inferior until we come to that story in John 13 where Jesus laid aside all of his clothes except for his underwear and he washed the feet of his disciples and he was the son of God. And when Peter refused, Jesus told him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And that's backwards from what we think is appropriate for Jesus to say. He did not say, unless you wash my feet or the feet of others, you have no part with me. No. Unless you let me, your superior, wash your feet, you the inferior, you have no fellowship or identity with me. Has that ever puzzled you like it has me? Why must we let Jesus wash our feet? He said to the disciples that now that they had let him wash their feet, he said, ye are clean. That is all but Judas. What was it about his washing their feet that made them clean? 
I'm a little over my head here on this. Just an idea. Your heart is humbled when the Son of God lowers himself to the place of a slave and performs a menial task for you and washes your feet and gives you maybe a bedpan when you're sick. You can never be the same afterwards unless you steal your heart like Judas did against the overwhelming sense of wonder and humiliation that floods your selfish human heart. In a few hours, the disciples were to watch transfixed as Jesus hung naked on the cross. Please take a good long look and let the miracle happen to you. Let Jesus wash your feet. He's appointed someone today to wash your feet on his behalf. Receive it from him as your superior and you the inferior. Let him be your heavenly psychiatrist. Let him wash not only your feet, let him wash your brain and your thoughts. You say, well, I don't need a psychiatrist. Do we need a psychiatrist? Do we need the washing that only the blood of Jesus can do for us? In some unexplainable way, Jesus has said that he not only bears our, our infirmities, but also our sicknesses. Jesus is a divine physician, isn't he? And he can heal our mental illnesses. You know, our bad choices of sin have developed a character in each one of us, and to one degree or another, all of us are mentally ill with sin. And the first thing that the Lord wants to convict us of, and this is hard for him as our intercessor. You know, it's hard work for Jesus to be our intercessor. You say, well, why is it hard work? Well, it's hard work because he tries, he's trying to convince us that we're mentally ill and we need a divine psychiatrist. That we've made bad choices and developed terrible characters that only the blood of Christ, the power of the gospel, can cleanse. And we want to say, I'm rich and increased with goods and I don't have any need of anything. And Jesus is trying to convince us the most difficult work in all the world is to be a high priest, to convince his bride that they need his psychiatric treatment of divine love. And that only comes to us by an appre of seeing and appreciating what it cost him to die for us on the cross. There's an intimate connection between the cross and Jesus' high priestly ministry. The ultimate meaning of the cross is the truth of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. And that's what Jesus is trying to reveal to us by his high priestly ministry. 
the ultimate meaning of the cross. For a people who do not understand the meaning of the cross cannot be healed by its blood. We need a deeper understanding of the cross, amen? It's Jesus' gift to us. It's the Father's gift to us. This is what brings us fellowship with God and then with one another, the cross. And that's what communion is about. It's fellowship with God and with one another. And only the cross and Jesus' ministry and the holiest of all can make that possible. Dear Father in heaven, we come to you this day as it were on our knees. The reason this truth is not very popular is because the revelation of the cross to our dull senses is a humiliation of all of our pride and self-sufficiency. But it brings us to the foot of the cross and we see our nothingness and our total unworthiness that all that we have been doing, even religiously speaking, has been self-motivated for what we can get out of it. And all of the time you were seeking to win our hearts from, away from our self-sufficiency, which is our great idol. And so, Lord, today it's absolutely essential that we observe communion, that the cross be the focal point of this church family, it's only the cross that unites us. Everything else divides us and splinters us into self-sufficiency and arrogance and jockeying for position. It wasn't until the disciples saw the cross and its true meaning after Jesus' resurrection that all of the strife and, supremacy, uh, strife and desire for supremacy and position in the kingdom it wasn't until they saw the cross that all of that melted away and they were totally ashamed for the way they had despised the cross before. They had little understood what it meant. Lord, we need to understand and appreciate the cross this morning. We are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There's great knowledge and wisdom to be gained in the foolishness of God and the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. Help us to explore that as a great adventure this morning. We ask this in the Savior's name. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.